Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the second Aliyah of the Sidra of Bereshit, Genesis. The second portion, the second Aliyah, begins at chapter 2, verse 4, and ends at verse 19. The Torah begins its description of a second view of creation, and all kinds of incorrect theories have been proposed because this creation story is different from the one described in chapter 1. But let me repeat that the Torah is not a history book, and it is certainly not a science textbook. It is a book of religious instruction and revelations regarding the relationship between man and God. Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik has presented probably the most well-known and convincing explanations on the issue of Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 in his book, Lonely Man of Faith. Man, in chapter 1, is the pièce de résistance of creation. He controls it and rules over it. In chapter 2, man is creation's servant and caretaker. The name of God has changed from the universal Elohim, in chapter 1, to the personal Yudke Vavke, because the first chapter is a rendition of the universal aspect of existence in God's power. And this chapter, chapter 2, is about the responsibility that man has to a covenant, a covenant that, unfortunately, man will wind up breaking. I would, however, like to deal with the discrepancy between these narratives of uh, regarding the issue of our original man, or Adam HaRishon, versus our scientific understanding of evolution and the fact that homo, homo sapiens have been around for some hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of years. Again, the Torah is neither a history book nor a science textbook. This first man, this Adam, is unique in the fact that he has the spiritual capacity to communicate with God and to sense the obligation of religious and moral duty and therefore to be held responsible for abrogating that responsibility. He is the very first man, if by man, by Adam, we do not mean any Homo sapien or Homo habilis or Homo neanderthalus or whatever it is, who makes, and we define man as something that walks the earth and, and, and uses tools, but if we define man as the one who perceives God, the first one to be instructed in his religio-moral responsibility, that man then is Adam HaRishon. That is the first man. Ele toldot ha-shamayim asot Adonai Elohim et... These are the evolutions of the heavens or the skies and the earth in their creation in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the sky. In this new chapter, we notice a definite shift in tone. God's name is changed to one that we use to indicate the relationship between the covenantal God of the Jewish people and his relationship to the Jewish people. We will notice here that the style is more poetic, it's repetitive. For example, no, notice the chiastic ABBA structure that we have by describing first the sky and the earth and then following it by the earth and the sky. The word toledot is a difficult one to pin down. It comes from the word walad, of course, or valad or yalad, meaning progeny as a noun, and as a verb it means the process of giving birth. There are a series of ele toledot, these are the toledot in Bereshit, but all of the rest of them, as opposed to this one, are connected to some human being. First to Adam, and then Noach, and then Noach's kids, then Shem, then Terach, Yishmael, twice, Yitzchak, Esav, and Yaakov. 
by each, the story tends to focus on their children. Here, however, we have a toldot of the sky and the earth, meaning all of God's natural creations. So it's hard to translate the word as children or progeny. Ibn Ezra suggests events in one place or the way things come about here, but I prefer, as I as I translated above, these are the evolutions, since it fits every use of that word, toledot, in this book. What that means to say is the phrase introduces events or children whose existence causes a significant evolution and change from that which has come before. It foreshadows a seminal event or existence which will alter humanity in the course of history. For Esav, it was the splitting between the two political divisions, the tribal Alufim of Seir and the monarchy of Edom. For Jacob, it was the transformation of, of his history due to the unique and visionary capabilities of his son Joseph and the disaster that those capabilities, along with Joseph's poor handling of them, uh, um, ensued. For Terach, it was the pursuit of understanding God that evolved into, that evolved into a son who Avraham, obviously, or Avram, who got it right in the idea that there is only one God, and that God is moral, he is omnipotent and omniscient. In this chapter, the world as a whole evolves based on some events. As I said, because here we have the first man who is morally and religiously responsible, and whose acts will therefore transform the world. I would also like to point out that the word yom hardly means day here. Era is better, and day carries that meaning in English as well, such as the expression, those were bad days, which do not refer to a 24-hour period at all, but refer to a time or distinctive era. And all the shrubs of the fields had yet to exist on the earth, and all vegetation of the field had not yet sprouted, because the Lord God had neither caused rain to fall on the earth, nor was there any man to work the fields. This vegetation that we have here, this Esav HaSadeh, and has very little to do with the vegetation that was made on the third, third day of creation back in chapter 1. Here we are talking about fields and vegetation for cultivation, that is farms and their produce. Hence the word sadeh or fields, that is arable fields, twice. The sense is that Produce is not growing because, A, God did not set up a rain cycle, a water cycle, for the proper watering of arable land, and because, B, without man to cultivate those fields, there was no need for such a system. This is not a, a scientific statement, but it is a moral religious one. Cultivating needs man, and man is created in part for the purpose of cultivation, of bringing forth life from the earth, of sustaining and maintaining nature, which is his duty. But mist, or perhaps ground well, groundwater, would rise up from the earth to water the surface of the land. Note the word ha'adama here, and not ha'aretz, which connects adam, man, with the adama, with the land that he is tied to. So the Torah may be telling us that while there was no rain, the earth was producing a certain moisture, which began the growth process, and therefore begins the need for man to be created to care for it. Rashi, on the other hand, sees it differently. He sees 
sees this moisture as part of the ingredients used to fashion man in uh, from the earth in the next sentence. But I still think that there is sort of a moral religious connection. That is, because God started to make the earth flower, he created man to serve that duty, among others, of caretaking his earth. Vayitzer Adonai Elohim et ha'adam afar min ha'adama vayipach be'apav nishmat chayim vayhi adam lenefesh chayah. And the Lord God fashioned man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became breathing life, that is, a breathing living thing. The Ramban explains that this explains God's use of the plural, let us create man, in chapter 1. I hinted that I would be getting to that in this chapter. Um, what the Ramban explains is that the plural of let us create indicates that man is a product of the combination of God's transcendental spirit and the physicality of the dust of the earth. Note the word yitzer here means to fashion like an artisan or like a sculptor fashions a creation. And as we saw, the creation of man is purpose-driven to care and to cultivate, uh, care for and cultivate the earth. Now the question is, where should he do this job? Vayita Adonai Elohim gan be'eden mikedem vayasem sham et adam asher And the Lord God planted the garden to the east of Eden and he placed there man whom he had fashioned. I think that this Garden of Eden, this paradise, is essentially God's experiment. The newly formed man, the man who can understand religious and moral responsibility, has a paradise created for him to see whether he can keep it and care for it, all the while obeying God's rules or a rule, essentially, since there was only one, as we shall see. And the Lord God caused to grow from the earth every tree that was desirable to the eye, and that was good for eating, and the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, along with the tree of knowledge between good and evil. Unless the tree of knowledge being good and evil, which really isn't said where it is, is in some unknown location. Of course, this foreshadows the events too that will occur later, where man is commanded to avoid eating from the tree of good and evil, and when he fails to do so, God prevents him from eating from the tree of eternal life. The tree of life is essentially straightforward. It provides man with supernatural eternality. The tree of knowledge between good and evil, or good and bad perhaps, is more challenging to try to get a sense of what it means. It can't be that eating from it provides man the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, if that were so, man could never have been punished for transgressing the prohibition to eat it. It would be like a baby that doesn't understand what they're doing, who knocks over a precious vase. Well, unless the parents are capricious, which is not our view of God, there is no way you could punish a baby for such an act because it doesn't know what it's doing. So clearly Adam didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know the difference between good and evil. Uh, in the sense of following moral responsibility and religious responsibility before you from the tree. The tree certainly doesn't mean that it provides uh, general intelligent understanding, since Adam is capable of naming all the beasts and taking responsibility for cultivating the garden, uh, so that can't be it. Ebenezra, knowing that, in fact, the phrase tov vera is used as an idiom in Tanakh, or Nach really, for sex, says that the tree provides the knowledge of human sexuality in the reproductive process. This fits with the embarrassment uh, that Adam and Eve feel at being naked in front of one, one another only after they eat from the tree. 
um, perhaps since placing them in the garden is an, is an experiment of utopian existence and their life there was endless, sex was not required. Of course, Ibn Ezra's view takes us, this view that the tree gave knowledge of, the, uh, of, um, of that which is sexual in nature, that takes us very close, uncomfortably close to the idea of original sin, which, since it was adopted so strongly by early Christianity and still remains in the form of Catholic celibacy for priests, etc., we tend to shy away from Ibn Ezra's explanation. Judaism does not see sex as inherently sinful, um, and therefore, I think we'll avoid that explanation as well, as even though it has merits. There has been a lot of ink, uh, therefore, spilled on the meaning and significance of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it is ultimately outside the scope of this lesson to review them all. I hope that my few suggestions serve as a springboard for further explanation, but I'll leave it at that. And a river comes out of Eden to irrigate the garden. Remember, the garden is east of Eden itself. And from there, that is from the single river, it would split, it split into four Rashim heads, which are apparently four separate rivers. Shem ha'echad pishon hu kol eretz ha'chavila sher sham ha'zahav u'zahav ha'aretz ha'hi tov sham ha'bedolach ve'even ha'shoham. The name of the first, that is the first river, is Pishon. That is the one that meanders through the land of the Chavila, where the gold is, and, parenthetically, the gold of that land is high quality, and there is also found the Bedolach and the Shoham stone. Even Ezra says Bedolach are pearls, the Septuagint, the Greek translation written for the Greek-speaking Jewish community in Egypt in 250 BCE, translates Bedolach as, interestingly enough, Anthrax which is Greek for coal, based on the way the disease caused coal-like black lesions on the skin. Uh, The Greek also translates uh, shoham as prasinos, meaning light green. So maybe it is referring to the stone lapis lazuli, but nobody knows for sure. There is no doubt, however, based on the description of gold, that Chavila is the northern part of the African continent. So the river Pishon may be the one which becomes the Nile of Egypt at a later time. I'll talk about our apparent, uh, the apparent geography, which is being described here in a minute, but first let's continue our tour of the four rivers. V'shema nahar sheni gichon huasofev et kol kush. And the name of the second river is Gichon. Uh, Gichon, by the way, is a river which is mentioned that's by Jerusalem, or a wellspring by Jerusalem. Um, based on where it flows here, that doesn't seem to be one and the same, although it's possible uh, that in older geography, maybe they were connected and somehow. And the word Gichon really means bubbling up and bursting forth. Uh, anyway, getting back to the verse, the second river is Gihon, the one that meanders through the whole land of Kush. Kush is the land south of modern Egypt. It's south of the third cataract of the Nile, which is in which in modern times is around modern Sudan and Eritrea. And the name of the third river is the Chidekel, which is called the Tigris. This is the one that goes to the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And now for some speculative geography. The last two rivers are the rivers that define Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, in fact, in, in Greek means between Meso, Potemos, which is the rivers. 
the Tigris is the eastern border of Mesopotamia, and Euphrates is the western border, both of which come out of the Persian Gulf, which is why many speculate that Eden was in modern Kuwait, which also abuts the Persian Gulf. However, in order for the two African rivers to make sense, one has to imagine, that is, the Pishon and the Gihon, they don't come out of the uh, Persian Gulf unless one imagines that the Arabian Peninsula and the African continent were one landmass connected with Asia at that time. And, of course, it just so happens that this is absolutely true. It's what's called Pangea, or when all of the continents were uh, connected together. All you have to do is look at it, and you'll see how all these continents uh, were all one piece. Still, it's impossible to pin down the exact geography. And, in fact, the, or I should say the fact that modern Aden in Yemen at the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, assuming that there is a real connection between that city and the biblical Eden, complicates things further. There are two important things to note here besides the geography. The mention of Ashur is not an anachronism. The fact that the Tigris or the Hidekel flows to the east of Ashur, that is not an anachronism. Ashur was the nation in control of northern Mesopotamia, situated in northern Mesopotamia, and was well known when the Torah was written by Moshe, by Moses in 1250 BCE. However, they would not know much about the Chidekel River, the audience, Moshe's audience, that is the Jewish people, they simply wouldn't know much about the Chidekel, and therefore it would have to be described to them a little bit, because essentially it heads due, due north into uh, the El Jazeera Mountains, it never really affects uh, the people living in Israel. The Euphrates, on the other hand, which is the fourth river, is of course... Um, uh, very significant for people living in Israel and Syria and the Lebanon coast because all trade and all war came out of Mesopotamia by that path. It was on the or the banks of the Euphrates waterway that the armies marched uh, and, and, and it was through it or on its waters that goods were shipped from, the, uh, from Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean. It doesn't go all the way, but it comes pretty close and then one could take an easy road from there to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It is so politically and economically significant, Euphrates is, that in the Torah it is very often referred to just as the river, and everybody knows which river we're talking about. And the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. This is the responsibility and the reward, which is always tied to a covenantal responsibility, a commandment of do and don't do, is stated next. And the Lord God put a commandment on man, saying, You shall surely eat from any tree of the garden. In a modern idiom, I might translate the definitive absolute verb, as you can eat to your heart's content over from any tree of the garden, except, but from the tree of knowledge, between good and evil, or good and bad, you may not eat from it. Indeed, on the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now, as we know, Adam didn't die right after he ate from the tree, so it seems that the sense is as follows. God had endowed Adam as part of this utopian experiment in the Garden of Eden with eternal life, which also explains why God doesn't have to prevent him or, or prohibit him from eating from the tree of life. Why would he have to if he already has it? However, that eternal life would be stripped away 
a de facto death uh, upon transgression, which is exactly what happened. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should exist alone. I will make for him a helper at his side. Ramban says that the meaning of lotov means things are incomplete, since in chapter 1, God always stated kitov, kitov, and God saw it was good in the first chapter when he completed a, an identifiable and, identifiable and distinctive creative process. Rather than going right to the creating of the woman, though, I think the question is, why does God now in the next verse start with the whole naming of the animal business, as we'll see? And what I think is happening is that God wants to demonstrate that man is different than any other creation, whether it's minimal, mineral, vegetable, animal, that while man can name and master and dominate every animal in the world, none, not a dog and not a horse, none of them is suitable to be man's partner in the business of caretaking for the world. Vayitzer ad and the Lord God fashioned every animal of the field from the earth. Note the word, the use of the word sadeh, field, since again the focus on our chapter is on cultivating arable land and all the birds of the skies, and he brought all of them to man to see if he w- what he would call each one of them. And whatever he would name each one of these living things, that would be its name. As Rashi hints, the idea of naming is an act of domination, and man dominates nature. But that is not the goal of man uh, in this chapter. That is not why God created man here. Man must serve and God, guard and be a caretaker for God's nature and God's religion, as Therefore, any relationship with animals, a dominant, subservient relationship, will not satisfy the need for a partner to help Adam in his task. I'm sure I'm not spoiling it for anybody if I tell you that tomorrow we will see it is the woman who, as part and parcel of his body, his genetic partner, is the only one who can be a successful partner for man in his moral and religious obligations.